We all like a good celebration, don't we? Celebrations mark accomplishments, the end of an era, the commencements of something new, relationships, and many other opportunities. I feel like our family is kind of in the year of Jubilee this year, so many celebrations. In December, two, two of us celebrated 25 years of marriage. In August, my parents celebrate 50 years of marriage. In May, one celebrates the end of high school. In August, one of us celebrates half a decade of life. And today, one of us is celebrating a new pulpit. Often, our, some of you didn't even notice it, did you? Often, our celebrations are the culmination of an event. We come to a passage of the Bible that is celebratory this morning. In a way, it's the culmination of what the Apostle Paul has been teaching on assurance. So if you haven't done so yet, would you please turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Romans chapter number 8. It's page 797 of the Pew Bible. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter uh, of Romans to the church at Rome to teach about the undeserved, the unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapters 5 through 8 are specifically related to the assurance that Christians are able to enjoy because we are indeed children of God. So brothers and sisters in Christ, celebrate that security today. Celebrate that security all week long as you contemplate the truths that we have already heard this morning and that we will continue to consider as we go through some verses here in Romans 8. Now it's possible that you're watching online and that you've gathered with us this morning and that you are not uh, enjoying that security. You can't celebrate that security because you're not God's child. For you, this passage tells you what security is available for you if you call on Jesus. So we take on the last part of chapter 8 and the last passage of chapter 8. It also wraps up the section of, of chapters 5 through 8. It deals that Paul has been dealing with uh, here on the topic of assurance. The last nine verses of chapter 8 are like a hymn, a hymn of celebration, a hymn of worship. They celebrate the security that the Christian possesses and enjoys because they are in Christ. This anthem of, of praise is the climax of what Paul has been teaching. He celebrates with a, a judicial theme, if you will, in verses 31 through 34, which is what we, are, we will look at this morning. And then in verses 35 through 39, the, the, the final verses, the apostle celebrates that same security with around the theme of God's love. So again, hear God's word from Romans chapter 8, beginning now at verse number 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely or graciously give us all things? Who shall lay anything, any charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Let's not pretend, friends. Let's not deceive ourselves. Let's not be fake. We know that lacking assurance, that degrees of doubt are present at some points along this earthly journey. We can hardly believe it in chapter number 
8, verse number 1, when we read that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Really? No condemnation? But what about all of the sin that I have done? I mean, I mean, is it true? We tell ourselves, I've, I've yelled at my kids, I've cheated on my spouse, I've overeaten, I've cursed God's name, I'm guilty of lying, gossiping, or lustful thinking. Guilty, 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 guilty. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And that's how we feel, isn't it? But Paul also tells us that though we are sinners, we have an advocate that represents us before the only judge that is able to save and to destroy. And the verdict is in. God is for us. Possibly the most assuring reality of the gospel is to know that God is for us, not against us. Christian, God is for you. When you have failed miserably, and I mean really bad failure, and you've had repeated failure in your Christian life, remember that God is for you. When you despair of just another day of life, remember that God is for you. When you don't even think it's possible to live out a righteous or a holy life, remember God is is for you. The verdict is in, Paul says. Christian, God is for you. And here in these four verses, we will see that God proves that he is for us in four different ways. So let's begin this morning. God is for us. He proves it with the immeasurableness of his power. Verse 31 says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? There are no limits to the power of God. Paul is calling here for a response. He says, what then shall we say to these things? In view of all of the things that we have talked about over four chapters, five, six, seven, and eight, and for us, many weeks, even months, after hearing all of this that we've considered in chapters five through eight, Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? Paul makes his case by juxtaposing the idea of God's power up against the power of any other when he asks this question. Who's a possible match for God? By using the word if, the apostle is not doubting that God is for us. Neither is he asking. When he says, uh, what shall we say to these things, if God be for us, he's, he's not asking if, if God is for us. Rather, he's saying, since or because God is for us, who can be against us? Because A and B are true, then C must of necessity follow. I got A's on all of my assignments this semester. If I got A's on all my assignments this semester, how can I get a B on my report card? Because I got A's, I will get an A. Who can be against us? This question does not teach that nobody will oppose us. We know that we will have opposition in this life. I mean, we know that to be true, right? We've, we've experienced that. Rather, it's teaching us that the opposition is no match for God. We are secure because God's unlimited power is for us. And nobody can pluck us from his hand. Who can be against us? 
Who can take away our no condemnation status? Can other people? Now, other people could attempt to take away that status by, by heaping on rules or expectations that we keep the law in order to, to obtain God's favor. Others, but others cannot actually take away our no condemnation status. How about us? Could we, could we lose our no condemnation status because, because of us? Could we commit some kind of sin that would cancel out God's work of redemption for us? God's forgiveness makes it impossible even for us, for a believer, to sin himself out of God's grace. Satan would like to convince us that we will face condemnation. He regularly tempts us to doubt. Can other people take away our no condemnation status? Can we take away our, our no condemnation status of ourselves? Can Satan take that away? No, no, and no. Nobody is a match for the omnipotence of God. Nobody can frustrate the purpose of God for our eternal life. Listen to how Isaiah, the prophet, speaks of God's ability. In chapter 40, he says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them out all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Isaiah goes on, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. R.C. Sproul said it this way, all the human opposition that rises against us is meaningless in the final ana analysis because all the opposition in this world cannot overthrow the glory that God has laid up for his saints from the foundation of the world. Christian, you can rest. This is the heart of a worry-free life. Your anxiety can stop. It can find its stopping points in the omnipotence of God. Nothing or nobody can harm or stand in the way of those for whom God is for. And Christian, that is good news. Because God is for you. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. The verdict is in. God is for you. God is for us. He proves it with the immeasurableness of his power. God is for us. He proves it with the graciousness of his sacrifice. Look at verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely or graciously Give us all things. Paul again reminds us, much as, as in the way he did in, in chapter 5, verse 8, how God chiefly demonstrated his love for us. God commended, showed, demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So another question. 
how will God, along with giving us Christ, not also freely, graciously give us all things? He is gracious by, by in his not sparing. God did not spare his son from being crucified. Abraham was called on to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac, but as we read this morning, in the end, God spared Isaac, and spared Abraham from making that sacrifice. But God did not spare his own son. God did sacrifice his beloved son. So we're called to understand the posture of our omnipotent God. The Father delivered up his son to be crucified. It was not only that God allowed something to happen to Jesus. God delivered Jesus. God gave Jesus up. God the Father sacrificed his son Jesus. This if-then situation is a beautiful and poignant and so very assuring reminder. Friend, don't let your cold hearts miss this reality. God killed his only son to offer you redemption. God delivered his son to the cross so that you could be delivered from the curse. That's the extent God was willing to go. He did not spare his son. But his graciousness is not only seen in him not sparing his son, but also in this idea that he will freely give us all things. Paul now completes the if-then statement, but instead of finishing it with a then, Paul says, how? In reality, it, it, it brings home this point that it's, it's inconceivable for God not to give us something that we need. So the apostle convincingly argues that if God gave us his son, what will he not give to us? Because we're his children. If God went to that extent and sacrificed the most valuable treasure of heaven, won't he be just as gracious to give us everything else that we might need? God gave us his son. That means he will withhold nothing. It's absolutely inconceivable for God to not give us all things. Friend, be reminded this morning that God is not stingy. Neither is God poor or lacking in resources to be able to give you. God can give you all things. God is for you. God is going to provide for the needs that you have today and tomorrow and for all of eternity. God is for you. He's going to give you all kinds of things that you don't need, just as bonus, just as His grace is played out in your life. God is for you. God's going to give you the energy and the wisdom and the grace that you need to parent your young children or your teenagers or your adult children. God is for you. He's going to give you hope in the very darkest days of your earthly journey. God is for you. He's going to give you all that you needed that all that you need for your blended family. God is for you. He's going to give you peace in the raging storms of this life. God is for you. He's, he's going to give you healing from the abuse of your past. God is for you. He's going to, to give you goodness and mercy every day of your life. Paul David Tripp said it this way, God harnessed the forces of nature and controlled the events of history to redeem you. Will he abandon you now in your moment of need? God's not going to abandon you. He 
gave up his son. He loves you to that extent. Friend, God loves you so much that he didn't spare his son in order to secure your redemption. So you can rest assured that what you need and more, he will freely give you. The verdict is in. God is for you. He proves it with his power. He proves it with his sacrifice. Thirdly, we see that God is for us. He proves it with the justification of his elect. Look at verse 33. Who shall lay any charge or lay anything to, to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Here we have some of the judicial verbiage that I referred to earlier. God is the judge over all of the charges that would come against us. Now the accuser is the enemy, Satan. We understand that this is how he works. He, he regularly accuses the brethren. Satan doesn't stop harassing us. You felt it this week, didn't you? Satan's coming after us. He tells us how wicked we are. He tells us that we don't deserve Jesus. He accused Job. He accused Peter and Paul. He's accusing all of God's children. In fact, this is Satan's main work. He does accusatory work in an attempt to rob us of our, the joy of our salvation. Satan accuses us in an attempt to steal away the assurance that we are, that we are in Christ. Satan works aggressively to remind us of how we fail, bringing charge after charge after charge to our minds and to God. Is that how you feel? Like you're always facing another charge? Maybe it's your, the purity of your thought life. Maybe it's dishonesty. Maybe it's covetousness or some kind of idolatry, something else. But the enemy keeps throwing it up in your face. The accuser keeps reminding you, and the reminders don't stop. The accusations never end. Paul knows the struggle. Paul understood the feeling of being, of con of being constantly accused by the evil one. And that's why he is, he is so bold here. And he says, he says in verse 33, Who can lay any charge against the God's elect? It is God that justifies. And he's, he's boldly asking that question. It's almost like he says, he looks at Satan and says, Satan, go to hell. He mocks Satan by asking and answering the question, Who can bring any charge to God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Satan doesn't justify God justifies. Paul tells us that all of the accusations against God's elect are futile. They hold no weight. Those accusations are futile precisely because it is God who justifies. James tells us that there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Brothers and sisters, the verdict is in. God is for us. Christian, I've talked to many of you this week. Some of us are wallowing in sin. We're feeling defeated in our sin. We're living and thinking as if Satan's accusations against us are going to stick. And we give in to worry and anxiety, even about eternity. When that happens, you're forgetting that you're God's elect. You're forgetting who is the judge, that it's God, not Satan. Who justifies. You're doubting your standing with God because you're listening to the accusations of the devil. Christian, 
tell Satan that he can go to hell. God is the one who justifies. You are free. You face no condemnation because you are in Christ. You have been predestined. You have been called. You have been justified. You will be glorified. We sang it this morning. Bold I stand in, that, in thy great day. For those who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. You have been declared righteous by the judge of the whole earth. The verdict is in. God is for us. He proves it through the immeasurableness of his power, through the graciousness of his sacrifice, through the justification of his elects. And fourthly, God is for us. He proves it with the work of his son. Verse 34 says, Who is he that condemns? It's Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Christ died. Christ was raised. Christ ascended and Christ intercedes. God justifies his elect through the blood of his son. And this is what we celebrated as we came to the table. You Christian, you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus does not offer a temporary payment. It is a full payment to take away the full penalty of our sins. Jesus was raised from the dead, a proof of victory over sin and death. The grave, it could not hold Jesus. He conquered death. Friend, if you have gathered here this morning and you're not sure that you have the security, you don't have the assurance that you are God's child, we, we want you to understand that Jesus is the only way to eternal security. So you are invited by God to trust in Jesus' payment that serves as a substitute for your payments of your own sin. If you have questions about what it means to be born again, talk with us after the service. Let's meet this week. Let's talk about the scriptures, about what Jesus says, what it means to be born again. Paul tells us that Jesus is interceding at the throne of God. Our great high priest it never stops in his, his work of pleading our case before God. In the Old Testament's temple, there were no seats because the priests were always making sacrifices. They were always busy. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time, sat down at the right hand of God. If we understand the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we understand the security that he provides. Who can lay a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Christ is the one who was crucified and then raised and now intercedes for us. Who can hold a candle to that? Any accuser, whether it is Satan or circumstances or sin, shrivels alongside the risen Christ who is interceding for us at God's right hand. The price has been paid. The redemption has been won. The Lord is our salvation. You don't need to wallow in guilt over sin that is under the blood. You don't need to, to do penance or measure up. Jesus measured up in your place. Christian, God is for you. Don't listen to the enemy. Don't let him tell you that you alone 
have to resort to your own powers? Who can match the power of God? Don't let the devil tell you that God doesn't hear you or care about you. Who did not spare his own son for you? Don't doubt the goodness, God's goodness to you. Who, who will graciously give you all things? Don't wonder if you're going to make it through. Christ has already made the payments and is currently, right now, interceding for you. Christian, God has unleashed His unlimited power. He has graciously sacrificed His only Son to justify you through the work of Jesus. All things are working together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. He foreknew you, Christian. He predestined you for heaven. He called you. He justified you. And He will glorify you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also graciously with Him give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. The verdict is in. God is for us. So let's go. Let's go live with confidence provided to us within this gospel. Let's go live with the holiness that was seen in Christ's life. Let's go live with assurance that I am His and that he is mine. Let's go kick Satan in the teeth. We've been washed, we've been predestined for heaven, we've been called by God, and we've been justified by God. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Father, we thank you 